Welcome to episode 1.3 of part one, Reconciliation of the Warp and Wolf. I'm your host, Grover Elliott, and now I'm going to be covering my third defining characteristic, I am a husband. In everything I do, I must consider the thoughts and feelings of another. Well, of course I have to, because none of us is alone on this planet. But specifically, I must consider the thoughts and feelings of one to whom I voluntarily gave my solemn word and honor, an obligation of no small order. And for the record, she did the same with me. Essentially, we gave up some of our freedoms of being individuals. Me? I gave up motorcycles and access to the master bathroom. (laughs) And my wife? Well, she had to redefine the meaning of the word clean and resign herself to fighting over the thermostat for the rest of her life. So why do we get married? Why did you get married if you are? Why did I? I suppose I got married to enjoy a stable home life. That had to have come from my upbringing. That and a bit of trial and a lot of error. And aside to you young folks out there, Skip the first marriage, if at all possible. Go straight to the second one. It is so much better. What do I mean by a stable home life? Well, for me, it means having a partner to build a home with rather than just a place to stay like you do with a roommate. It's a partnership. But what is a partnership? Well, let's look at a definition. I like this one from Merriam-Webster. A partnership is a relationship resembling a legal partnership and usually involving close cooperation between parties having specified and joint rights and responsibilities. I don't like that the word partnership is in the definition for the word partnership, but my name is neither Miriam nor Webster. Moving on, listen to their definition of marriage. The state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. Now, some of you may have issues with these right off the bat. Does it have to be consensual? Contractual? What if one of us wasn't old enough to enter into a contract? The current laws don't allow me to marry my partner. And are you still holding on to that antiquated concept of marriage? Okay, I'm not here to debate the definition, legality, or practicality of marriage. I'm just giving you some definitions that I think do a pretty good job at establishing the appropriate level of gravity to the subject. The point is, a marriage, any marriage, is a serious partnership. It requires commitment by both parties. It requires sacrifice. Or as Jessica White said, marriage is a wonderful thing. But you get a lot of little things with it. It's not perfect. There's love in it. There's happiness in it. There's also sorrow, hatred, and madness in it. I think what our folk hero was expressing is that marriage, any partnership, takes hard work and commitment. It seems that these days, perhaps one or both of those is lacking to a great degree for many marriages, or what should be marriages. Statistics mongers like to throw around that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, though I'm I'm not sure that's limited to couples under the age of 30. Couples of all ages get divorced. 
Plus, a lot of those divorces end up in subsequent marriages. So statistics lose their meaning at the individual level. But why do we get married? If you're married, why? What are some of the reasons? Companionship? We're in love? We're having a baby? Or we want to make a family? Or... Because the government wants a more efficient way to track us, subjugate us, and keep us tucked away in neat little rows of tax meat. Those are a few. Perhaps you have another reason. To become a citizen, avoid deportation. Or his parents are loaded, or her dad's shotgun was. I know a guy who got married just to spite another girl who dumped him. We all have our own reasons, good and bad. But what is at the bottom of it? If you're like me, my first time, I was looking for that person who completed me, who gave my life a a centered purpose, who put lights and stars in my eyes, or some such bunk from song and film. I guess to some extent, we're all looking for that someone who fulfills all our wants and desires and makes us feel good about ourselves. Good luck. It isn't going to happen. No one is going to complete you. You have to be a complete person first if a partnership with someone else is ever going to work. Think about a partnership at work, you and your boss, or perhaps someone who works for you. Is that partnership going to work just based upon having a few things in common and each of you waiting for the other to complete you? Of course not. No partnership will work under those conditions. That may leave you hanging about what a marriage really is. I'll admit that my concept of marriage is currently placed on my Descartes list, along with a lot of other concepts in my life. The more years that pass during which I don't die, the more I realize just how much there is that I don't know. The more people I meet, the more I recognize that I don't have it all figured out. My dad had a phrase, that guy is dangerous. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. I try not to be that guy. The key is to maintain a a strong sense of humility, not easy these days, and to try to wipe out any tinge of contradiction I may have in my life and beliefs. That concept of moral contradiction is interesting. We often throw around the term hypocrisy when perhaps we should be referring to moral contradiction, a concept I've yet to find a term for, which for yet. Hypocrisy, the word we use when someone seems to be acting contrary to their moral standards, not practicing what they preach, treating gooses and ganders to different portions. That term actually comes from a Greek root regarding playing a part on a stage and refers to acting to appear to be what one is not. It's an intentional act. Of course, we see that from Hollywood on and off the stage. I'm not picking on actors for their roles, But when one publicly decries gun violence while playing in 10 shoot-em-up films after another, that easily falls into the category of hypocrisy. Or when the entertainment industry admonishes the rest of us for our rampant racism and sexism, all the while the violations seem to be centered in, well, the entertainment industry. And we've seen more than our fair share of it out of Washington and every state house in the country. Those are all fairly transparent, and I think most of us recognize them for what they are. But moral contradiction, that related, nameless concept, is likely more common. 
This one might refer to as unintentional hypocrisy, for lack of a better term. If you have a term, please post it on my Facebook page. This unintentional hypocrisy occurs when one truly feels and intends that he or she is following their moral convictions, but due to a lack of depth of understanding, actually violates it in various ways. This is common, in my opinion, due to the elimination of classical liberalism in our education system. We've tried to make everything black or white, red or blue, right or wrong, and eliminated all of the nuances in our education and morality. We've dropped the tough questions because they do not work well on assessment tests. We'll revisit this concept a little later, but let's get back to marriage before I chase this rabbit down the hole. We were asking why we get married in the first place. Why does marriage exist? Well, God put man and woman on the earth to procreate. Okay, we can start there. Procreation. Although I think we can admit to ourselves at this point that marriage is not required for procreation. Irresponsibility and poorly executed government programs do a mighty good job of bringing about procreation with nary a marriage proposal in sight. But there does seem to be a somewhat natural pull for men and women to join together and build families. And family units are arguably better at raising children than any alternative program. Of course, you can have a family without procreation through adoption or however it is that Hollywood celebrities and East Coast hipsters procure their multicultural broods. But actually having children seems to have figured heavily in the development of the concept of marriage. We can't really know whether cavemen carried fiancé bonking clubs around, but we do know that polygamy, typically one husband and a slew of wives, was quite popular early on. This was practical for a world in need of a human population, and for anyone figuring on the inevitability of war with the next door tribe, clan, or nation. For purposes of procreation, polygamy makes sense. Women can only contribute a couple of gametes every 10 or 11 months, though that isn't highly recommended, and only for a limited portion of their lifespan. As we've discussed previously, men, on the other hand, can contribute millions of gametes to the cause every 30 minutes or so at the age of 18, with a steady decline after that, but for most of the rest of his life or until he discovers bird watching. And polygamy worked financially for a long time. Just buy your harem a really large tent and a few eunuchs to guard them. I've noticed that there are fewer and fewer women out there willing to live in large tents with their sister wives, and the eunuch market has dwindled significantly. By the way, anyone pointing at the Church of Latter-day Saints and whatever television tells us about modern polygamy The church banned the practice back in 04. That's 1904. So at some point, we moved away from polygamy, perhaps as a reflection of the rising population, expense of keeping a passel of women happy, and those looks husbands got at church. Ah, church. That's why we get married. The church tells us to get married. Didn't Jesus help with the beverages at a wedding once? Well, it seems the church didn't really get into keeping track of marriages until about the 14th century. One of the things it was interested in was tamping out polygamy. 
And that led to some small amount of division as kings and other self-proclaimed deservables wanted multiple wives to choose from. This was a period when the line between church and state was quite fuzzy when it existed at all. Remember that royalty loved to use that divine right of kings to justify their lofty positions above mere mortals? To be sure, even today, many religions and countries still recognize polygamous marriage, though I cannot understand why. Not why the religions or countries would recognize it, why any man would want multiple wives. Yes, of course, there's the 18-year-old's reason. I get it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, har, har. But seriously and practically, HGTV should have been the death blow to this concept. Can you imagine having 37 wives, each with a different home improvement project laid out for you next weekend? (laughs) That's a hard pass. Yeah, 18-year-old fantasy husband doesn't know what he's talking about. That's enough about polygamy. We're exploring the history of marriage to try to understand why it's so tough to make a one-on-one marriage work today. And lest you think I'm just talking to hear myself talk, I went through all of this after my divorce so that I wouldn't screw it all up the second time. For most of history and much of the present-day world, marriage has been about building relationships, family-to-family relationships. Even here in America, we've only gotten fat and spoiled enough to dreamily chase after love for the last hundred years or so at the best, the last 50 years or so for most. Today, we like to be indignant about arranged marriages, looking at them as barbaric modern practices or subjects of scorn in historical pieces about our own land. The rancher's daughter pressed to marry the banker's son. The curly-headed prince forced to marry the cold princess he doesn't love instead of the angelic chambermaid. Or the young foreign couple who were betrothed to one another as toddlers. We hate that kind of thing in this country, but that's the way it was, and for some very good reasons. We don't even have to tax our imaginations to recognize this. Look back at the generation in your family that got married in the 1940s or earlier. If you were able to spend time around them as a couple, you likely don't remember seeing any public displays of affection. They likely spoke in terms of work, chores, and death. There wasn't a lot of squishy talk or discussions about dreams and such between them. That wasn't because they gave up on all of that or that they were somehow too refined to speak of such things. It's because marriages were more realistic back then. Your grandfather, great-grandfather, he had a solid job or some land and worked hard. His wife could cook and keep the house in order. Sure, they courted and loved each other, but they likely hadn't made a yearly trip to Sandals together and chosen a name for their second kid before they tied the knot, not like today. They got married because it made sense. Personal feelings were, hopefully, mutual, but they were a team to survive. Go back another generation or so, and you will see that even that little bit of personal connection was less important. The fact is, survival was tough. People had to create their own food and their own clothing and their own shelter for the most part in most places just over 150 years ago. A husband didn't have time to gaze into his wife's eyes and recite poetry. At best, he read a few verses from the Bible under the whale oil lamplight as his sturdy wife darned his single pair of socks stained from a 
pig slop turning, her hands calloused from milking the cow, killing a chicken, and scrubbing cast iron. Married life was full of hard, hard work. And having children was a necessity just to create a workforce to help with the daily grind of chores and survival. I'm not saying I'm pining away for those times. Thank God by no credit of my own, I was born in a place and time where that isn't necessary in order to survive. When we're choosing a potential spouse, we don't have to be preoccupied with considerations of survival, other than as a species, but not individually. I feel that fact tells couples that all work is out of marriage, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, today's situation really creates the need for more work. Back then, hard physical labor reduced the amount of energy one had left for arguing at the end of the day. And there was no opportunity to complain about what to watch on television, the color to paint the living room, or or even to paint the living room. No arguing over her wasting money buying worthless stuff like matching formal dinnerware or 800-count sheets for the guest bedroom. And no complaints from her when he invests so wisely in another over-and-under 12-gauge shotgun and custom leather saddlebags for his street bike. We have any number of things to argue about today, and our lives are so comparably easy that we have the energy to do so. We spend so much time together that we have the opportunity to find any cause of disagreement, no matter how insignificant. I think the problem is this. No one is going to complete you. There is no magical Disney ending. Most of us will never live in a castle with a stable hand to love us passionately and completely. We're going to get married, have a kid or three, work hard for a meager retirement, and pray that Social Security sees us through to the inevitable end. And you're probably going to live until 75 or 80 years of age instead of just 45. That's today's reality. It makes it that much more important to make sure you find the right person, the right partner. The fact that you both like to party with friends or are totally into anime is not going to cut it. You have to temper your expectations when it comes to lights in your eyes and all that junk you picked up from Anne Hathaway movies. And accept that this partnership is going to take a lot of hard work. Find someone you get along with. That means survive at least one really good argument before you tie the knot. Have some common interests to pursue together but some different interests that allow you time apart with friends. Date long enough to know their family. She will look like her mother. He will act like his dad. If he hates his mother or she hates her father, there better be a darn good reason. Have convergent goals, career, lifestyle, living location. Talk about religion. Make decisions about it. Likewise about children. Money Money, money. This is the biggest problem most couples face. Money can eliminate some problems. If it's already there, that's one less thing to worry about. I was given this advice. It's just as easy to fall in love with a rich person as it is with a poor person. Of course, I'm hard-headed, so (laughs) Mrs. Elliot and I have worked hard for years to get somewhat comfortable and made it through the lean times relatively unscarred. But having lived through many ranges of the economic spectrum, 
it's easy to recognize that life and marriage are more peaceful without having to worry about the source of the next meal or rent payment. Things that don't matter when choosing a partner. Breast size. Hair thickness. The car they drive. Women, guys buy Corvettes because they think it will get them women. Guys, women that respond to Corvettes will respond the same to cash, luxury apartments, or anything else of six-digit value. It ain't you or the car. Things you're told don't matter, but really do. Their family background, the job they have, the money they make, the amount of debt they carry. Having a similar educational background, a high school dropout is not going to be able to talk about the world with a PhD. And take that either direction you see it. They're prospects for the future, regardless of education level. Marriage is a lot of hard work. I'm not saying there's no love or romance in it. There should be both. And we live in a time when it is easy to concentrate on those. Just remember the hard work that goes into a partnership. The other thing it requires is commitment. And I'm not sure how common that is in this day of enlightened relationships, easy divorces, shack-ups, and men who like to come and go. You self-described gigolos are not impressive. Anyone can be exciting the first time out or or outside of a seemingly stale marriage, especially when you don't have to stick around to feed the kids in the morning after you've, well, whatever. Try turning a woman on for the 350th time, after she's washed dishes, and after you've just changed a green poo-filled diaper for the third time in an hour, all while both of you are waiting for the kid to wake up screaming. That's a challenge, not what you do. And shacking up? You're just using another person at your convenience for your own selfish gain. Just like all those healthy people who refuse to work but exist by panhandling. You're a sex bum, a homeless relationship squatter, waiting for something better, no, just different to come along. As soon as things get tough, you bail. Let me put it another way. I play the guitar, but I'm no musician. There's a big difference. I can pop in and out. I can change instruments. I can quit. I can do the bare minimum and get by. I'm not heavily vested in it. In fact, it's just a fun pastime for me, nothing more. Oh, I like it. I'm passionate about it. Don't get me wrong. It makes me feel good, and when I get in the zone, it's the most important thing in the world to me. I spend a considerable amount of time fantasizing about being one of the greats. But really, there's no pressure on me. If something more fun comes along, I can put the old guitar in its case or hang it on the wall if I just want to pop in for a quickie here and there, and I can go play golf. If I was serious about it, I'd get rid of my golf clubs and hunting gear and workshop and photography equipment. Boy, I'm mediocre at a lot of hobbies. <laughs> I'd get rid of all of those distractions and commit everything to playing guitar. Make or break. This is the, the thing that is most important in my life. Me and my guitar against the world. Together partners. I hope you get my point. Finally, there's those who pretend they are in an enlightened relationship. We're above the institution of marriage. We love each other and that's all that counts. It's our thing. Yeah, well, things are things until they ain't anymore. 
Getting married is a public pronouncement that the two of you are committed to one another in partnership. Back in the day that families were joining forces and tracts of land for mutual benefit, this could be done in front of the village. And of course, you can throw your church in there to give you a stronger sense of it being a bond with God's blessing. Oh, but your enlightened relationship does all of that, you say. Everyone from the coffee shop to the neighborhood vegetable co-op to the front office of the trailer park knows the two of you are committed to one another. Until it comes down to legal protections. And we all need those at some point. That's really how the state got involved with marriages. At first, it was to make sure that people weren't getting involved in multiple marriages, building duplicate families. While that situation makes for some of the most interesting funerals, it can get rather sordid and difficult to work assets through probate. So, the state started keeping records. Massachusetts was the first here back in the 17th century. That's a good idea on a number of levels. It gives your child a last name, or the claim to one. It protects assets for all interested parties. A spouse that foregoes or forestalls a career in order to raise the children needs some level of financial security in the event the partnership is dissolved. Both parties need legal rights in the court system during that process. Up through the middle of the 20th century, the father was awarded full custody of children in almost all cases in the United States. During the second half of that century, the pendulum swung with a vengeance to the point that fathers have very little hope in family court today. That's pretty typical of government involvement. One wrong is replaced with another. In an attempt to fix one government-produced problem, new problems are stacked on top. And any time you give the state a little power, it is most assuredly going to abuse it. The states really ramped up their involvement in marriage when our society started naturally desegregating. Specifically, marriage licenses were used to make sure whites and blacks did not intermarry. Native Americans were left completely out of it. That meant no legal protections, good or bad, and segregation was being sanctioned by the government. It got so egregious that you had to have a blood test to make sure there was no hidden or even unintentional miscegenation going on. This was during the age of eugenics. It was really sick. The government telling people who they could and who they could not choose as a partner in life just because of their skin color or the skin color of a distant, long-dead relative. But there it was. Where were we? Oh yes, enlightened relationships. I'm against those shack-ups. Call them what you will. I think you need to commit and make it official. But where should the official come from? What defines that? Perhaps our whole concept of marriage needs some enlightenment. I have nothing against church weddings and marriages. That is between you and your God and the officiant and whatever structure of elders and whatnot you have set up in your church. You'll have to deal with the prospect of divorce or not, being able to move on in search of happiness or stay in an abusive situation. But that is all up to you and your commitment to let your church dictate certain elements of your life. As for the state, we need certain legal protections, but does the government ever not bungle its job when the reins are loosened? We can give a kid a last name without a state marriage license. 
I suppose we could pass laws in this day of genetic testing to secure certain rights for offspring or even to open certain family medical information to them. But forcing a possible father into DNA testing? Yeah, I don't like that idea. On the other hand, there is the problem with the mother having 100% control over the abortion decision. How do we attempt to ensure legal protections for the products of marriage while also ensuring the legal rights of those who want to get married in the face of a government or population that objects? That loops us back to that unintentional hypocrisy concept I brought up earlier. I think the most common form of moral contradiction is the kind that is backed into accidentally. I think most of us at this point agree that it was wrong for the government to dictate that whites and blacks couldn't get married. You want to make sure your bloodline stays pure? That's why God gave you cousins, I guess. But, But what about homosexuals? That's a much tougher situation, isn't it? Seemingly so. But is it? Back to why do we get married? God designed it that way. We enter these partnerships for mutual benefit. Families are the best units for raising productive societal members. Partners and the related parties need legal rights. These are some of the same reasons people use to fight against gay marriage. But why? God did make man and woman to procreate. That's nature. A gamete from the male, a gamete from the female. Of course, there are exceptions in nature, but not in Homo sapiens. But is everything we do in line with nature? Building homes on the coast or in Tornado Alley is fighting nature, yet we do it all the time. What's more, we rebuild them after every every hurricane wipes them out, at great expense to the taxpayers and property insurance customers at large. Yeah, but it ain't natural for a man to lay with another man. Anyone who has owned hunting dogs knows that is not a steadfast rule throughout nature. I had a friend that would go nuts every time his hunting dog tried to, well, go nuts on his buddy's dog. Yeah, they were both male dogs. It killed me to see his reaction. I just pointed out that I was there for the dog to find ducks, not broads. Who cares if he's gay? Besides, I'm not sure that a union between two people who love one another and promise to be true to one another in order to build a steady and loving relationship is all that contrary to God's intention. No, that's not an endorsement of forcing churches to sanction gay marriage. My own church and I have a difference of opinion on this, I think. As I said, the whole concept currently resides on my Descartes list for further study and discussion. But a church should not be forced to change. As a lifelong member, I'm not going to go try to change mine. I am free to move to a different church. There are plenty that are okay with gay marriage. Straight couples enter into marriages for mutual benefits, and it certainly seems homosexuals do too, as long as their families aren't shunning them. Families are the best unit for raising productive members of society. But anyone who says that any man and woman pairing does it best is either lying to himself or hasn't walked around in public much. There are plenty of straight parents that have no business procreating or even being left in charge of a child. The only test for pregnancy comes after the pregnancy, and it's just a yes or no test, not a competency test. It's pretty difficult for gay couples to adopt, 
Generally speaking, they have to be in a much better place than a traditional couple in order to succeed. This means they are more stable at home and have more disposable income than the average in order to adopt a child. Stable and wealthy? What a nightmare situation for a kid. Stop before you say something like, those gays don't need to be raising kids up to be gay. If this is truly your fear, that kids are raised by their parents to have a certain sexual preference, I have two questions for you to ponder. How did anyone end up gay if they were created and raised by heterosexual parents? And are you afraid of becoming gay if you are around a homosexual? I know that probably angered a lot of people out there, but we are better than this. We need to think and think deeply. Rest assured, I'm not homosexual. I don't have a gay bone in my body, nor do I have any concern about any other person's sexual preferences or practices, well, other than my wife's. I do care about people being free to live life as they care to. And I also care about being consistent morally. I notice that people who are dead set against the legalization of gay marriage are often the type to say the government needs to stay out of their wallet and their bedroom. Well, why should the government be in someone else's bedroom? And don't say for the children. I don't know of any studies concerning the health and happiness of children raised in a homosexual household by, say, an interior decorator and a banker compared to children raised by a heroin-addicted ex-stripper single mother shacked up with an unemployed former dumpster washer. But I'd be interested in the results of such a study. And if it's legal and cost concerns, legal rights can be established in a number of ways. And as for cost, insurance coverage and the like is up to insurance companies and employers who offer coverage. When the government is in charge of such things, Costs go sky high and quality drops to near zero. Is more government involvement the sensible solution? Now, homosexuals, you do need to help yourselves here. It's not easy changing people's long-held perceptions, especially when you find yourself swimming in the alphabet soup that is now being shoved down society's collective throat in an effort to legitimize every sexual bent and mental illness on the street. You need to distance yourselves from men who wanted an excuse to dance down the road in a G-string and feathers, who want to talk kids into taking hormones and lopping off body parts, and from people who say they are pansexual. I get it. You have no self-respect and really low standards. That isn't something to brag about or lobby for. I like being married. It's not an easy partnership to maintain. It takes a lot of work and commitment. And it's hard enough without the government telling me who I can or can't marry. I should be able to choose freely. My first wife and I did not choose wisely. I can't speak for her second marriage, but I certainly married up this time. I think everyone should have that choice. More importantly, I can't think of anyone less qualified to make that choice than a bunch of pasty-faced bureaucrats stuffed into some marble-floored den of thieves in Washington, D.C. I heard one of them say years ago that any time a gay couple gets married, it hurts his godly marriage to his wife. I was dying to hear the logic behind that statement, but he offered none, because of course there is none. I mean, 
Did anything bad happen to his marriage when Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton exchanged blood vials? Or for that matter, did Rock Hudson's marriage to Phyllis Gates help this senator's marriage? One final thought on this. As a husband, I no longer represent just myself in the world. I represent someone else. I represent a partnership. That affects how I do my job, how I live my life, how I dress, and how I take care of myself. Neither men nor women have a monopoly on letting themselves go once they get married, and that's wrong. Keep yourself up. Give your spouse something to be proud of, proud of being a part of, a partnership. Who are you looking for? Have you found that person that you want to spend the rest of your life with? How much are you willing to invest in that relationship? Stick around for the next episode where I'll cover what it means to me to be a father. Mm-hmm.